This morning, we uh, are still in Genesis, and so if you have your Bible, uh, we're going to turn now to the Word of God, and uh, we have been uh, in Genesis for a little while, and uh, what I'd like to do is uh, pray to start, and then we will uh, kind of go into uh, our, our sermon and our text for this morning. So let me pray. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for your Word. Uh, thank you, God, for this uh, Easter season. Uh, Lord, I pray that, um, that there would be a, a constant and abiding hope in our lives. And I pray, Lord, as we come to this text, uh, Lord, which is still in Genesis, still your work interacting with Abraham, uh, Lord, that you would help us uh, to understand you more through it. And God, that we'd also understand ourselves more, Lord. Indeed, uh, in this text, you, you really speak about uh, the state of the whole world and the evil in it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to um, better understand your response to it. And God, as always, I pray that you would use me in spite of myself uh, to speak uh, clearly and truthfully, and uh, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, This is uh, really an interesting text. We're going to be in chapter 18, verses 16 to 33. Um, This comes right on the heels of our scene from last week. So if you're here last week, uh, again, another magnificent uh, scene where God himself comes to earth and has a meal with Abraham and interacts with Abraham and Sarah. There's this, this relational dynamic that is really something new for Abraham and, and quite astounding. And uh, by this point, uh, verse 16, it, it seems like this great day has come to an end. And Abraham is just thinking, man, this is, this is amazing. He's, he's walking out his guests, who is God and two angels. And he kind of thinks that's it. But what we find here is that uh, God has other business on the earth. And so he begins to explain his plans to Abraham. He looks down across the Dead Sea, and there are some cities, uh, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and some other smaller cities, and they are very, very wicked cities. And God begins to explain uh, what he is going to do, his plans for those cities. And in his plans, we find not just a picture of, um, of uh, God's response to sin uh, in a localized uh, version, but really it's, it's a testimony. It's, it's a hint at how God is going to respond to evil on a much grander scale. And so as we begin to read, we're going to read uh, just 16 to 21 to start and kind of look at his explanation to Abraham and then uh, Abraham's interaction with God. And the whole picture is one of, uh, of astounding vibrancy of, of how it is that God brings an answer to the evil and the suffering in the world. So with that in mind, we'll turn uh, to Uh, Verse 16, this is God's word to us this morning, the beginning of it. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely be a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. We're going to pause there. So we have here is God looking at these cities, and uh, very clearly, uh, these cities are in grievous sin. Even just the name Sodom and Gomorrah in our culture is one that's associated with uh, evil, with wickedness. And we see that God uh, testifies to that effect. Uh, In verses 20 and 21, he says, uh, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I am going to go down. 
And so what we see here right at the outset, our very first point is this, there is evil in the world and humanity cries out for an answer. There is evil in the world. Specifically here in Sodom and Gomorrah, there is a depth of evil and wickedness that cries out for a response. Now these were places where indulgence and corruption uh, went unchecked. They were places where the strong preyed upon the weak for money, for sex, for power. In Sodom and Gomorrah, if you were stronger than someone else, you would go and simply take it from him. And it wasn't an exception, it was the rule. Uh, Next week, we're going to go into the city with the angels as they go and and check things out. But I want to give you just a a snapshot of the culture of these these cities, what we're talking about here. This is in verses 4 and 5 from chapter 19. Uh, The angels have come into the city. They're in a lot, which is uh, Abraham's nephew's house. And it says this, But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called on Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now that phrase, to know them, uh, biblically speaking, means to know sexually. What they're saying is, we we know you have some visitors there. We want to to have our way with them. We want to dominate them sexually. Why? Because that's that's what we we do. There's no sense of inhibition here in the city of Sodom. Those who are strong see someone who is weak, especially a stranger coming in, and notice all the men of the town. This is indicative of the entire culture. They're not worried about any kind of reprisals from any human authority. There's no law, no order, no civility. They're not worried about human authority, and they're certainly not worried about God's authority. This is the culture of Sodom and Gomorrah. Throughout Scripture, we see, even from the prophet Ezekiel, he mentions that this is a place where the poor are oppressed. They they have... Money, they have wealth, they have resources, but no one cares for the person in need in Sodom. This is a place of grievous sin, where those who are weak are constantly abused. I mean, even the fact that these are strangers, that in the East, the the custom was to welcome the strangers. If you see Abraham, when there are strangers that walk by, he did what everyone would, would be expected to do, which is to run out, to welcome them in, to care for them, to give them shelter. But here, just the opposite happens. That's the depth of of the wickedness that is present in Sodom. And what makes this worse is that they actually had exposure uh, to godly influence. If you remember back in chapter 14, the kings from the north had come down and had went to war with Sodom and Gomorrah, and they they took them over, and they, they took them captive, and were heading back up north, and Abraham heard about it because his nephew, Lot, was there with him. And so Abraham tore off after them and rescued them, and on the way back down, Abraham uh, spent some time with Melchizedek, who was the priest of God. And so you would have had in that scene uh, all of the, the rulers of Sodom there having just been rescued by Abraham, God's servant, and there they worship God. And they, they, they praise God, both Abraham and Melchizedek, and they refuse the money that the people of Sodom want to give him. They, they've had an influence of someone who says, there are things more important than this world. That recognizing who God is, honoring him, is better than the things of this world, and yet the people of Sodom have completely rejected it. They they don't want anything to do with God. They don't want anything to do with righteousness and right living. They want to follow their own instincts. And by this point, their instincts are twisted to the point that they see sexual domination as something pleasurable, as something good and acceptable. And the truth of the matter is that the outcry 
in the city of Sodom has not stopped. That same outcry exists today because the sins of Sodom, the, the, the corrupt nature of Sodom has not gone away. It exists in our, in our cities, in our schools, in our families. And as we come to a text like this, it's important to recognize that, that when Scripture reveals this specific moment in history, it is also speaking uh, to humanity as a whole. And as we look around, we see some of this same abuse and victimization. And as I was preparing for this sermon, I thought it would be good to, to highlight a few of these instances in our culture today. So one of the uh, stories that came to mind is uh, the story of Larry Nasser, who you might have heard. He's been in the news lately. He was the former USA Gymnastics team doctor, uh, one who was there to give treatment uh, to those uh, young girls and young women who were at a high level of gymnastics in the United States, but he was also one of the thousands of sexual predators. He took advantage of his position to violate and abuse those young women. Now, 16 years later, uh, they have brought charges against Larry Nasser, And one in particular, her name is Rachel Den Hollander. She was the first to bring charges against Larry for what he had done. And it turned out that over 150 women ended up joining her cause. And in the court system, uh, Larry Nasser took a plea bargain. So what we saw, if you saw on CNN, they, they televised some of the court trial. This was really the sentencing hearing to decide you know, what would be the consequence to Larry Nasser? And everyone who wanted to, every one of his victims, had the opportunity to give a victim impact statement. And so these are some of uh, Rachel Den Hollander's words. She was 15 when she went to see Larry, and uh, he abused her for a year. And this is what she says. She says, Larry sought out and took pleasure in little girls and women being sexually injured and violated because he liked it. What was done to myself and these other women and little girls and the fact that our sexual violation was enjoyed by Larry, it matters. It demands justice. And the sentence you impose today will send a message about how much these precious women and children are worth. You have seen our pictures, Your Honor, moments in time captured when they were young and vulnerable and violated. That is the same cry that is in our text. The cry of Sodom those who have been victimized and abused, still present today. We see that in verses in 20 and 21. It's because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. Because of that, God says, I will go down. And according to their outcry that has come to me, I will know the sins that have been done there. This is always the cry of those who have been hurt and have been abused. Is there no one who knows what's going on? Is there no one who will do anything? We all cry out for justice, and rightly so. But sadly, not everyone is given the opportunity to do that publicly. And not all the crimes, all the abuse that's committed is, is brought to bear in the courts. There's another story that I came across. Uh, I listened to a, a podcast called This American Life. It just brings stories from the, the lives of Americans. And, um, and this story uh, came to mind. This is a story told by two brothers, James and Kevin. Uh, James is the older brother, Kevin the younger brother. Uh, now they're in their 40s and 50s telling this story. They're reminiscing uh, about uh, a road trip they took back when they were early 20s, late teens, and um, they went down to Mexico, which was very exciting to go on a road trip, spend a month just driving around, checking things out. But unfortunately, the, the road trip did not go very well. There was a lot of friction between the brothers. 
Uh, a lot of, uh, they got irritated at each other, and it, it climaxed at a moment in a hotel room when they just got into a huge fight. And James, the older brother, he just, he beat Kevin. Beat him so he was bloody, there was angry words exchanged, and the next day, Kevin uh, got on a plane and went, and went home. And James, the older brother, was, was really brokenhearted. This is, this is years later, and they have been basically estranged the whole rest of their lives together. And in telling the story, it was clear that he, he wanted to bring some reconciliation there. But the weight on James's heart um, was not simply because of what he did to his brother in the hotel room, but it was because of what he did to his brother in light of their, their childhood, which was a childhood of much violence and abuse. Uh, here, are, here are James's words. He says this, To beat Kevin like I did, after the childhood we had, I felt ashamed. Kevin and I had never really sat down and talked about this, but I know I let him down. Not just in Mexico, but long before that, all through our childhood, there were these beatings, so much violence like every other day. When I was nine, I saw my stepfather throw Kevin into the sharp corner of a wall. It opened up his forehead. There was so much blood, and Kevin was only four years old. Even now, almost 40 years later, I can barely stand to tell him what happened when I went to the emergency room. And what he explains is, is the whole family went to the emergency room. And the stepfather, when asked what happened, said, well, he, he tripped. He fell into the wall. He needs to be stitched up. And the mother said the same thing. And when they got to James, the older brother, he said the same thing too. He didn't say anything. And, and the weight of not saying anything and sticking up for his brother crushed him for years. Here's some more of his words. He says, as the older brother, I had a responsibility. I mean, regardless of what was beaten out of me, I had this responsibility, you know. We would go visit our dad, our real dad, every other weekend, but I wouldn't say anything. The only thing it took to get us out of that situation was for someone to speak up, to tell our dad what was going on, but I was too afraid to say anything. So I said nothing. And this fact, more than any other, makes me hate myself. See, there are silent cries. Probably the majority of the cries in Sodom and in our world are, are silent. Those who have been abused, those who have been oppressed, those in our communities and in our families who, who either because of, of fear or because there's simply no one to hear them, their cry is in their heart only. It's a silent cry Wondering, pleading, does anyone know what's been done to me? We ourselves in this room may have cries like that. We may be wondering, does anyone know what has been done? Does anyone, does anyone care? Is there going to be any answer for this evil that has been done to me? This is the question that has existed since the time of Genesis until now. What is the answer for this evil in the world? What adequate response can there be for the wickedness of humanity from from days gone by until now, for those that are suffering now, what answer can there be? There is an amazing answer. There is a complete and comprehensive and wonderful answer. And we find it in the pages of Scripture. We find that God has a complete answer to evil, and it is comprised of both his judgment and his grace. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to find it here in this text. 
God's answer to evil, uh, to begin with, is judgment. Look again at verses 20 and 21. Then the Lord said, because of the outcry against Sodom uh, and Gomorrah is great and the sin is very grave, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether. Uh, there's probably a footnote in your Bible. What that phrase means is, is whether they have done something which is deserving of destruction. God intends to go down and to examine with meticulous sovereignty what has been done in Sodom and whether they are deserving of punishment. God's response to evil is judgment, is justice. He does not have to guess as to what has been done. He knows what has been done and he brings judgment. Now, this idea of judgment is one that our world struggles with. We maybe in our own hearts struggle with it. We initially, as a culture, reject God completely. But if there is a God, we like him to be a God of love. And if he's a God of love, then that means there's no judgment in him. To be a God of love means that you accept, that he accepts us for who we are. That there's always grace and love. We think that judgment and, and grace and love, they're mutually exclusive. That they can't go together. But the truth is that they always go together. If you think of someone that you love dearly, and you imagine someone that is abusing them, someone that is harming them, what is the response in your heart? It's always judgment, and rightly so. You want to intervene. You want to bring them to account. If you love someone, you will always bring judgment when some harm has been done to them. And this is what we find in God, that God loves us dearly. We are his creation. And so his promise is that he will bring judgment. And in fact, that's what we cry out for. We cry out for justice. We cry out for, for an answer to the wrongs that have been done to us. I want to read a few more words from Rachel Den Hollander. At the beginning of her, her testimony, she spoke directly to uh, the, the judge there. And this is what she said. She said, there are two major purposes in our criminal justice system, Your Honor. The pursuit of justice and the protection of the innocent. Neither of these purposes can be met if anything less than the maximum available sentence under the plea agreement is imposed upon Larry for his crimes. Not because the federal sentence he will already serve is lacking, but because the sentence rendered today will send a message across the country, a message to every victim and a message to every perpetrator. See, what Rachel is saying is that in the application of judgment and justice, there is an answer to evil, and it brings comfort to those who have been wronged. Those there in that courtroom, they are crying out for justice because it brings some manner of, of comfort that the things that were done to us, they matter, that I matter, and that the justice system will do what it can. And in this case, it, it did apply the, the maximum sentence. He had already been convicted and given 60 years. Now he got an additional 175 years on top of the previous sentence. There was some comfort in that. And God's promise is that there will be a perfect judgment at the end of days where every sin will be accounted for. Because you see that in our world, we have some good court systems. Here in our countries, we have decent court systems, but even there, there are crimes that are not ever heard. Or there are crimes that are brought into the court system, but for whatever reason, um, the evidence is lacking, There's, justice is not served. And we know there are many, many other places in the planet where there is simply no court system. There is no legal system that will bring justice in instances of evil and wickedness and abuse. And it's so important for victims that they know 
that the evil will be held to account. There was one part in the story between Kevin and James as they were, as they were talking about kind of what happened once the abuse was brought to light. Um, uh, they told their dad, and, and so they were brought out of that situation, and, and things were made better. They, they were saved in a sense. But I was, I was fascinated to hear that, that for Kevin, see, what they did is they brought them in and they sat them down at the kitchen table. Uh, with one of the, the family ministry workers, and they said, okay, okay, boys, Kevin and James, we need you to tell us all of the instances of abuse. We need to make a record so that, so that it's on file. And in the, as they were talking about it, they kind of they laughed about it almost. Like, how do, we, how do you remember all of those times? It's been every other day. And they did their best to, to recount all of the times of abuse and beatings, but, but here's the, the fascinating thing is, for years after, Kevin kept remembering the things that he'd forgotten. Here are his words. He says, he says, for years after that conversation, for years, maybe decades, I thought of what I had forgotten to tell that guy. I would be walking along and I'd remember, oh, I hadn't mentioned that time. And I know right away I'd forgotten to tell him. I, 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 it would pop into my head. And I would go, oh, I didn't mention that time I was beaten. Now, why would it be so important to him? Why for years did it keep popping up in his head and his heart? I mean, things had been dealt with. The, the legal system had intervened. But see, it weighed on his heart because part of the answer to evil needs to be an accounting. For those who are victimized, they need to know that someone knows about it. Not just in general, but, but every single instance. Is there a response is there someone who knows about all the things that have been done to me and will, will make them answer for it? And the amazing testimony of Scripture is that God says very, very clearly, I know everything. I know what you've been through. I know every single instance, even the things that are done in secret, even the things that will never come to the light of day, because I am God, because of my sovereign knowledge, I know what has been going on. You see it in the text. As God goes down to Sodom, he says simply, I will know. I will know what's gone on. And I will bring everyone to account. There's no one else in the universe that can say that. There's no one else that can bring that level of justice to the evil in our world, except for God himself. And that, that is also the peace that God intends to bring for those who've been victimized for perhaps you, if there are things in your past that, that no one knows about and that is so difficult to deal with and, and so you've just shut it away, what God is saying is that, that he knows already what has happened and that he wants to bring an answer in your own life as well. God does care. God does know and he will judge ultimately. We can be sure of that. But the other thing we see in our text is that this, this judgment is not simply comfort for those who have been abused. It's also a warning for all of us. If you jump back to verse 18 and 19, uh, we see why it is that, Abraham, uh, that the Lord is talking to Abraham. I mean, God could have just gone and done this. He didn't need to tell Abraham, except he had a reason for it. Uh, God says this, uh, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. See, the intention of God is that Abraham would, 
would see the severity of God's judgment and take it to heart. That as, as God was building a people for himself, that Abraham would pass on this sober reminder that there will be judgment when it comes to sin. There will always be consequences. And so Abraham now has the opportunity to teach his children and they their children. And what will develop is a culture where there is a fear of the Lord, a healthy fear of the Lord in that we fear our sin and we turn away from it. We recognize the fact that down that road leads to destruction. That's what we see, in fact, time and time again in Scripture is everyone looks back to Sodom and Gomorrah as the example of what God does. Look here at 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 6. Uh, it says, By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly. So the question for us then is, have we taken this to heart? In our own, in our own lives, do we recognize sin for what it is? Do we recognize the danger that comes from pursuing sin, from turning a blind eye to all the, the influence of God? And are we, are we talking to the people in our lives about it? The very clear intention here is that God wants for us, the parents, very clearly, but, but in all our relationships, if we really love the people around us, we will look for opportunities to speak to them about patterns of sin, about areas of blindness, and we will say in, in love, man, do you know where that leads? Do you see in scripture what God promises will happen for all those who are unrepentant in sin? And for us to do this well, we need to be very aware of our own sin. We need to recognize that each one of us have things to answer for. Not, not to the extent of the Larry Nassers of the world, but certainly all of us have hurt others. All of us have, have caused pain and all of us have something to answer for. And so the warning is not just that we would turn from sin, but, but since we are in sin, where do we go? What help can there be? What answer can there be for those of us who, have, who are rightly condemned in our sin, but are pleading for help? And the answer is, is the grace of God. We've seen clearly that, that God will bring judgment, but also God's answer to evil is that there is grace. And for this, we turn to the rest of our text. Now this, I'm going to tell you, this is a really interesting interaction between Abraham and God. As Abraham thinks about what's going to happen and recognizes that his nephew Lot is down there in Sodom, he begins to intercede. So here we go with uh, verses 22 all the way to 33. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. 
He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So, man, that's kind of strange, right? It, as you read it, one of the reasons it's strange is it really seems like there's kind of a negotiation going on here, doesn't it? Where God on the one hand is saying, man, I really want to destroy these cities. And Abraham's saying, I don't know, but what if there's some good people there? And God's like, I guess I won't do it. It seems odd, right? It seems kind of out of character. And, and I, I don't think that's the best way to understand what's going on here. It, especially because if you look at the responses of God, he is not negotiating with Abraham. What we find here is a moment, a, a moment of instruction for Abraham. What God is doing is drawing him in to explore the depths of his mercy and his grace. See, this really is the first intercessory prayer of the Bible. This is the first time that anyone has gone to God on behalf of someone else and asked for something. And for Abraham, you can tell at the beginning, he's not even sure if if he's allowed to do this. Like, am I allowed to ask God for this kind of thing? Certainly for the other gods he used to worship, you would never do this. Nana the moon god, would she wouldn't care Right? That there would be no response if you were to go and ask for things like, like grace or mercy or justice. But see, Abraham, in his relationship with this God, there's a difference. This God seems to genuinely care about, about people. And see, Abraham, and knowing that his nephew is down there, he knows Lot is not perfect, but he's not as wicked as the others in Sodom. So he goes and he begins to kind of just check things out. Lord, if there's 50 people down there, like if there's 50 good people, you wouldn't destroy the whole city, would you? And if you notice God's response, it's always immediate and decisive. There's no pushback. There's no negotiation. God is saying, of course I won't. Are you going to ask me for more? How gracious do you think I am? He invites him in to continue exploring the depth and grace of God. And that's what Abraham does. It's a willing participation. Abraham says, well, if there's 45, if there's 40, if there's 30, you can see, though, that he's nervous, right? Every time he begins to, to speak, right, some of the language is, I am but dust and ashes. Oh, let, the, let not the Lord be angry, right? He's very aware that this, is, this has never maybe been done before, that he can appeal to the Lord of the universe and ask him for things, especially since God is just in bringing a consequence to every human being on the planet, including Lot. There is sin present in the hearts of every human being, And so what Abraham is really asking here for is is grace, is mercy. And we see the combination then, both of God's, God's, the certainty of God's judgment, but also the willingness he has, his heart of grace. Because in the end, Abraham asked for 10. That's that's as far as he can go. One more thing. If there's 10 people, there are 10 good people. Abraham's probably thinking there's got to be 10 good people in that city. The reality is there isn't. There isn't even 10 good people in the city of Sodom, and yet we still see the grace of God. We're going we're to see this in detail next week, but again, here's a preview. Um, verse 29 of cha- uh, chapter 19 says this, So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. 
And so what we're seeing there is that he, he remembered the appeals of Abraham, that he is a God who hears the prayers of his people and he showed grace to Lot and his family. We see here something that for Abraham, I mean, this would have been utterly shocking, totally unexpected and unprecedented. He would have thought that no gods ever act this way, but actually that's not true. If you look at scripture from beginning to end, this is always the way that God acts. Right from the time of Genesis, even when they commit the first sin and ruin everything, what's God's response? It's, it's affirming, yes, there will be consequences, but there's also grace. Instead of being put to death right away, as he told them, he says, go from the garden. Go and live. And there's the promise that in time, there will be one who comes that will conquer Satan and sin and death. God has this amazing dynamic of both, both justifying, both uh, affirming, and saying there will be the just punishment for sin, but then also offering grace. We see it in the story of Noah. There's wickedness all over the whole planet. And God comes to bring judgment, but also grace. He saves Noah and his family. Time and time again, God is warning the people of the world, look, there will be a final judgment. But he's also offering grace because he's hinting at the fact that there will be a final gracious answer to the evil, not just in our culture, in our relationships, but also in our own heart. And this is our final point, that God's, God's final answer to evil is Jesus. And God's final answer to evil is Jesus because there we find the fullest expression both of his judgment and of his grace. That, that on the cross, all of the wrath and anger towards sin is poured out, but it's not poured out on us. It's poured out on his own son. And so we see that the justice of God, that every single sin will be accounted for, but we see the grace of God because those who deserve it are not punished. But those who have faith in God, faith in Christ, we escape the punishment of God. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you would say, yeah, yeah that's what I believe. That that's what it means to be a follower of Christ, that we recognize that our hope is ultimately in him. But what can happen is that we put this in the category of theological truths. That we say, yeah, that's true. I'm glad that's true. That gives me a sense of ordering the world and, and I kind of know where I'm going and I have hope for the future. But what we miss is the fact that this, this answer to evil actually brings transformation now. That, that it brings hope and healing and an answer to the evils that's been done to us and to the evil that, that we feel towards others. And this is possible because of the forgiveness of God. We are transformed and shaped and softened because we who are sinners have been forgiven by God. The cross changes us it fundamentally changes us to be a people that can be gracious as God is gracious. It can bring comfort, real comfort and peace here and now, not just in heaven, that, that will come, a full sense of comfort and peace, but now there is wholeness that comes through the cross. I want to read to you um, Rachel Den Hollander, the, the girl who kind of, the young woman now, who led the charge against Larry Nasser. Uh, she's a believer, and at the end of her uh, testimony, uh, she spoke to Larry directly. And I want to read her words and for you to hear what happens when you have been forgiven by God as she has been, and how she's able to relate to, to the one who abused her for so long. Here's what she said. She said, in our early hearings, Larry, you brought your Bible into the courtroom, 
and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know that forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. In the Bible you carry, it says, it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble and you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you carry speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. How is it that a victim of sexual abuse can speak this way to the person who did it to her? How is it that she can have such peace in the midst of such pain and that she can pray for the one who victimized her? I submit to you, it only happens when you know Christ. It only happens when you have experienced the forgiving work of Christ in your own life and recognize that, that we all are deserving of punishment and yet through the substitutionary work of Jesus, through him saying, I'm gonna take that on myself, we are set free, not just from our own sin, but from the bitterness that comes from being sinned against. See, Rachel Den Hollander, she is able to have peace because she knows that Larry Nasser is in the hands of God and that God promises to either, in his grace, forgive Larry as he repents of his sin or to bring judgment upon him. And in either case, Rachel is able to have peace and say, is in greater hands, more gracious, more perfect hands than mine. And so she's able to move on. And so my questions for us, in light of these, these weighty truths from our text today, are these, do you recognize the certainty of God's judgment? Do you recognize the fact that God, God promises there will be a day when everyone will be held to account? And do you know the grace of God? When you stand at the throne on that day, what will you appeal to? Do you find hope and forgiveness and healing in the cross of Jesus? Is that your justification? Is that the hope you have? See, there is no other answer to the evil in this world that satisfies. That satisfies both our desire for justice and our desire for grace. And if you know Jesus, if you're here this morning and, and, and you know him, has it changed you? Are there still weights? Are there still unspoken hurts 
that are buried in your heart that, that you have just decided, I, I don't think I can ever think about that or talk about that. There's no reason to bring it up. There's, no one can do anything about it. Because what we see here is that God already knows about it. And God wants to bring healing now, even here, as you understand the depths of his grace. Understand the forgiveness that he brings and that he wants to bring a wholeness to you here in this broken world. And my hope then is for us as a church, for those of you who know and love Jesus, that we will pursue him more in this. That we will do the hard work. We will have the the hard, tear-filled conversations with the people we love, where there's been hurt and brokenness, so that we might better be comforted by the cross of Christ. And my word, my question for those who wouldn't yet say that you believe, that you're here and maybe you're checking things out or you're, you're on a journey of faith, and, that, and that's great. We love that you're here. But my question would be, where else do you find an answer like this to the evil of this world? Where else do you find both the justice and the grace that we need? I submit to you, it's only in Jesus that we have this answer. And my hope is that you will, you will come to truly know who he is and come to faith. So, let's pray and close our time. Lord, we are thankful we're thankful, Lord Jesus, that, that the full spectrum of humanity is addressed in the pages of Scripture. Lord Jesus, you make very clear here in, in these words that, that you care deeply about us. God, you know everything that has been done to us, everything that we have done, and you have an answer for all of it, a perfect answer, a complete and comprehensive answer. And Lord, I pray for us, God, that we would experience uh, the, the healing forgiveness of the cross and also the, the peace that comes from knowing Jesus, that you have it all in your hands, that, that there will be a day when you return and you promise to bring to justice all those who continue on an evil and, and refuse to repent. And I pray, Jesus, that for us here and now, that we would, we would grow in, in confidence, in comfort, and in wholeness because of who you are. And Lord, that we would be a light into the world of forgiveness and compassion that we would intercede as Abraham did. And I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.